Welcome to Notes from the Field, brought to you by Noeo Science. Well, Gordon, good to be here with you, sir. It is always good to be here. How, how are things? Great. Excellent. Excellent. And are you doing anything? What's the thing this time of year in, in let's say, natural history? What time of year is it? As, as far as the scope and sequence goes. Well, right now I'm teaching human, the human body. Okay. So, and although I could touch on this topic that we're going to do, which is mutualism, there's some examples, but usually I don't, well, I do a little bit in the anatomy, physiology. Yeah. And I might touch on that as one of the examples. Yeah. Of mutualism. So that's our topic today, but I was just wondering, Will, could you, uh, define it? Yeah. So uh, mutualism, this is a relationship between different species that's mutually beneficial. Uh, it's, right. uh, the, the, the existence of the relationship between the two creatures benefits both members. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of the, what we call the, the big three maybe of a concept called symbiosis, where we, where we roughly talk about close relationships between species that aren't predator-prey. Mm-hmm. Um, and they aren't, they aren't familial. They are, they aren't territorial, but between members of the same species, they're actually kind of a, a more true coexistence of sorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other two are parasit, parasitism. Right. And then I'd say the third one's a bit of a, I have some philosophical, maybe some theological, uh, and some biological problems with the third one. The third a one's called commensalism. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a catch everything else category. Right. Uh, commensalism it- purports to be where one species benefits and the other isn't harmed. Right. But it doesn't benefit. Right. And so, and I'm of the mind that it seems to me the more we study these relationships, the fewer commensal relationships we'll they find. They either fall on one side of the line or the they're other. They're probably going to fall on one side or the other. Yeah. But for, for <clears throat> all intents and purposes, like for example, the textbook example for commensalism is uh, Remora uh, yeah. riding sharks. Yeah. And it's like, well, it doesn't seem to, hinder the shark much it's not like a ectoparasite but it does hooky bob it it sucks on the shark right and so you could say well it's creating drag hydrodynamic drag right in the water and stuff like that so at that level of parasitism i'm shrugging my shoulders and Saying, going nah, i don't yeah, I don't, not I don't, so much not so much <laughs> yeah but um <laughs> that's a good point i but, like that but, example yeah, the the reason I picked mutualism is it's sort of a uh, an echo of what we would like to see in a well, with some exceptions in a pre-fall world. There's certain there's certain mutualistic relationships that seem to be full on. This could happen in a pre-fall ecology. Yeah, others not so much. Both species benefit, so that seems all happy and warm and fuzzy, but, you know, one's, for example, the ox pecker is on a lot of these big African mammals. Yep. So it's, uh, you see these birds with these colorful red and yellow beaks and they're hopping around on, uh, either Cape Buffalo or rhino or, or giraffe, and they are picking ticks and other ectoparasites off. And you say, well, that's good. It it benefits the the host. It benefits the oxpecker. Yep. 
because it gets a meal and the uh, host gets, gets rid of some gets, parasites. Gets rid of, yeah, active parasites. So, yeah. but predation's involved. So, yeah, you know, yeah, we, <laughs> it kind of begs the, and then we, yeah, when then so. we talk about nefesh life or these insects, yeah, yeah, nefesh so life. We're, and... we're not going to kick that, we'll kick <laughs> that can down the road. <laughs> so, yeah, mutualism, uh, it's really a beautiful thing, you know, yeah. not to, not to sound cliche or sappy, right. but it, but it uh, is this is remarkable thing. design. Yeah. When two creatures can benefit each other in, in kind of exceptional yeah. ways. Right. What are your. Well, so my first one, uh, and I'm just kind of picking things that I've uh, read about somewhat recently. The uh, the one I'll start with is um, is not very not the most cuddly of creatures. In fact, it's <sighs> a, a microscopic bacteria uh, that lives in the deep oceans. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, about about early 1990s, maybe just a little taxonomic history here. Uh, the early 1990s, Carl Woese uh, proposed a, a new a new super level taxon above the level of kingdom. And that's the domain. Right. right. Uh, and that's been fairly well accepted by now. Most textbooks include that, um, the domain, there are some advantages. There are some disadvantages. Of course, all of these, uh, taxonomic systems, uh, thoroughly, uh, especially the domain system, this is a thoroughly, um, rooted in evolutionary narrative, mm -hmm. but it does also uh, take into account the vast diversity in what was formerly called Kingdom Protista. Mm -hmm. And it, it spreads that out, I think, in a more fair and equitable way in regarding these distinct groups as more distinct from one another than just being lumped in Protista. And so right. I like the domain system, but in that domain system, there are two domains. But doesn't, the domain's above Protista, so it, it doesn't is, help, but it, it doesn't it, help split Well, the three domain itself doesn't help the split, but with the addition of those three domains, the kingdoms have also been, uh, at least some of the kingdoms have been split into yeah. supergroups within Protista domain Eukarya. needs, yeah. yeah. Do, Protista does need some work. And it's, it's, it's sort getting of a, a lot of attention right it's, now. It's because it's such a, mis I call it kingdom miscellanea. Yeah. Because of just basically, if it doesn't fit an animal, plant, fungus, or bacteria, <laughs> then you just toss it into Protista. Yeah. But it's... Yeah, I'm get, we're getting off track, but no, I, uh, we're still good. I'm go coming ahead. back. You're to, coming back. So the three domains are eukarya, and then there's two domains that are that are just bacteria and uh -huh. and two different bacterial types. And one are called archaeans, uh, and they tend, and the other is called just straight up bacteria. And so yeah, the I mean, archaeans tend to have some different ways of getting energy, um, not not kind of the normal ways. And so one particular archaean that has a symbiotic relationship mm -hmm. um, is one that dwells inside. Uh, the tube worms in, mm. in hydrothermal vent communities. Yeah, those are amazing. And so they're- Those big red, are they, they're, they're annelids, I Yeah, think. they are annelids. So Some they're polychaete worms and they have these beautiful red plumes um, and they build their own calcareous tube mm -hmm. um, and they're able to, because, um, because they're in a fairly, a very dense, uh, a very hot, a very toxic environment to many creatures, they're down at these seeps uh, which are above hot spots uh, in in kind of the asthenosphere and mantle, where 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 molten material gets a little bit closer to the surface, and superheated water yeah. that's full of you metals know, comes pouring out. Yeah. So where the animals are, that whole ecosystem. Yeah. Where what what's the actual temperature? I know the vents Ugh. themselves. Do you know? Because it's the temperature ridiculous. of the water, or the temperature of the earth. The temperature of the water where these organisms live. I know the vents are very very hot. Right exactly where it comes out, but I didn't yeah. know 
if the animal community has to be somewhat be distant. a little distant from it and exactly what temperature that I'm just curious. No, that's a great just, question. Uh, what I, I know, I, I seem to remember hot. something like 400 uh, plus where the water comes out, but I don't remember. I don't remember. Yeah. Top. I'll, I'll look it up while you, while you talk about another one. We'll, we'll circle back around. And so the superheated water that's full of, of sulfur, oftentimes these archaeans, these bacteria are able to, they live inside of the tube worm. And they're able to get this hydrogen sulfide and they're able to convert it into a useful carbohydrate. Yeah. By and, taking CO2. Yeah. And doing sort of something that's it is, not, fo it's, it's it's not photosynthesis. Yeah, it's chemosynthesis. It's, it's chemosynthesis. Yeah. So they are autotrophic. They're making their own food via chemicals. Rather not than from sunlight. the sun. I just love that. Pretty amazing. And so they serve as the foundation of that food web right. uh, because they bring energy into the system, which right. then can be used by the tube worm. And then, and then you've got all these little white crabs crawling around. They're yeah. also, so that's the base of that whole uh, ecosystem rather than up in the shallow waters where the light penetrates, then the base of the, the, the producers are truly photosynthetic, whether right. there be algae or plants uh, up on land. So that, yeah, that's a great, that's a great weird and bizarre yeah. situation. Absolutely. It's, Super it's strange. And they're, the, these ecosystems tend to wink out also. They're, they tend to be ephemeral. Uh, mm -hmm. Biologists will dive to the same spot they dived a years ago and the hydrothermal vent community will be gone. And Isn't so it because the, the hot spot's changing? That's of the my speculation. I haven't read that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Circling back around to the human body, this is something that, which I'm, I'm bringing up some examples that aren't your typical examples of mutualism. By the way, we had, you had mentioned symbiosis, and a lot of people sort of conflate symbiosis. You had mentioned it as symbiosis can be uh, mutualism, parasitism, and commensalism. But usually people just say, oh, that's a symbiotic relationship, right. when they really mean mutualism. Right. But the one that I was thinking is uh, bacteria, the microbiome in, in the gut of people. Yeah. So we often think of bacteria in a negative sense. We think, oh, disease-causing organisms or pathogens. And really a small, small fraction of bacteria are pathogenic or disease-causing. The bacteria that live in our gut is just, uh, it's a big community of different species of bacteria. And those bacteria uh, feed on everything that the, the human body is not able to process. Yep. I'm sure they also feed on stuff that we, we are, but they uh, use it for their own sustenance. And then they also crank out other things that are beneficial to our system. They produce certain things that then the human body can absorb. And so when this microbiome gets really disturbed, you know, through just really bad diet or just hardcore antibiotics where antibiotics wipe not only the bad bacteria out, but also the, the microbiome of the gut, right. then that just throws the whole body off and other, other organisms start coming in and taking their place, whether it's yeasts and you get yeast infections and all sorts of things yeah. that complicate. So that's a cool one, but um, uh, I'll just mention one more and then I'll Are there, turn Do it. you have a sense for how many different 
types of bacteria our oh, man. gut gives it, housing ba- to? Oh, I, I don't know. Okay. I, I'm sure somebody's got a tally. I know. You, and I'm sure it, it, it varies from person to person. Yeah. But yeah, it's a lot of different species. E. coli is a big one. Yeah. Bacteroides is a big one. But, you know, beyond that, I don't know. It's been a while since I had bacteriology, microbiology. Yeah, yeah cheers. <laughs> but, um, you know, the uh, I'll give a textbook example of a, a good mutualism that I'm really fond of. I like to teach marine biology. And one of the classic mutualism or mutualistic relationships is the clownfish. Yeah. Um, of Nemo fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the clownfish and sea anemones. And we've we've seen that not only in cartoons, but we've often, if you've gone to an aquarium, you'll see these brightly colored clownfish. Uh, and they're swimming and cuddling up in amongst the sea anemone tentacles. Amongst and c- the nidocytes. Yeah, amongst all these nidocytes. Now, nidocytes are cells on those tentacles that are basically a little cellular uh, harpoon. Yeah. Well, inside the cells, uh, this nematocyst, which explodes out of the cell when it's triggered and stings anything that encounters the, the tentacle. Right. That's how anemones feed. They, they sting and paralyze other creatures that, uh, hapless, hapless creatures that swim in and get stung and paralyzed. Well, these clownfish just swim in the tentacles and rub up against the tentacles with impunity. And it's because the, the mucus on the, on the clownfish's skin protects them from, from the sting. I don't know. It's never been clear in some of the writings, so I haven't gone deep in the technical literature. Whether yeah. the, my guess is that they just don't fire. Or if they do fire, they just go into the mucus or the, the clownfish is immune to them. My guess is that they're rubbing all the time. That would be sort of a waste of your your friends, you know. If you're your friends if you're dis- yeah, if you're f- discharging these nidocytes, right? Every time your friend right. the clownfish is rubbing up, <laughs> you're really throwing away a lot of ammo, yeah, right? Your friend causes your nidocytes <laughs> to fire. He's really your enemy, yeah, because that those those nidocytes are the way that the enemy gets food, right? So. We see that the the clownfish is protected by hiding in amongst the tentacles because those are formidable, but also certain fish that are, you know, don't care and can feed on the anemones, like butterfly fish, they can come in and rip the tentacles and eat them. So the clownfish chase those butterfly fish away and protect the anemones from certain predators yeah so that's a that's a great ex- that's a great example of yeah that's a good one that's kind of the classic, yeah, that's a classic example one. i love it but we'll go on land next time but what, yeah. what, what you got any well i was just going to give an update here so it is uh it was 400 celsius that's the temperature of the superheated water i don't get any indication i'm sure it does cool off right away it's hitting very cold seawater right away uh, so I don't right, know so what somewhere in that zone where the, it's cooling off it's cooling it, off as it reaches the tube worms yeah. yeah, but 400 Celsius over 700 yeah. Fahrenheit. Yeah, you wouldn't, yeah. That's nothing hot. could, I know that, that some- That would bag, damage nothing, cells. That would, anything that's a eukaryote would smolder under that and just, just- Absolutely. Die. die. Yeah. Um, I do know that there are some bacteria, thermophilic bacteria, but I don't think they're living inside of some kind of annelid. 
Right. <laughs> Some thermophilic bacteria yeah. can ex- uh, stand like auto, in the geysers auto, of Yellowstone temperatures. Right. Autoclave temperatures. That's in, that's really hot. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah, because autoclave is what we use. It's sort of a pressure cooker, uh, but industrial pressure cooker that bacteriology uh, labs use. Yeah. And you sterilize glassware and and nutrient auger. You just cook it so hot that nothing can live in there. And there are bacteria that can happily divide in autoclave temperatures. Yeah, probably some variety of archaean. They're just just crazy. They have some wild cell wall material and, and yeah. other and other. And for weird those of you chemicals. that like molecular stuff, DNA and 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 the base pairing of DNA. We some of you, if if you've had biology, you know that A's bind with T's and D and DNA and G's and C's uh, hooked together in the in the double helix. In these thermophilic bacteria, if you look at the GC content, it's a lot higher um, because G and C have three hydrogen bonds and A and T oh, have yeah, two. that's good. And, and when you're in really, really cooking uh, environment, when I was in the lab, all I need to do is boil my, the, not my DNA, but if I was working in bacteriology and I would want to single strand my DNA, I yeah. just put it in a Eppendorf tube, boil it for, you know, a couple minutes. Break all the hydrogen bonds. And break all the hydrogen bonds between the two strands of DNA. Yeah. And I'd get single-stranded DNA. But these guys, because they're in such hot temperatures, have to hold their DNA together. So they need more GC. Oh, I love it. Yeah. That's a new tidbit for me. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. So other mutual, other mutualistic relationships, I'm just kind of thinking... Um, here, Gordon, do you have another one at the top on the top of your well, list? Well, one you of my favorites, for? one of my favorites is the acacia tree in Central South America and the acacia ant. Mm. So, bullthorn acacia. And these acacia trees are very, very edible. <laughs> so, they don't have any formidable toxins in the leaves. And so, they would be very munchable to most herbivores. And, um, but they have a, a mutualistic relationship with this ant. Do they have the thorns like most other acacia trees do? Yeah, they have thorns, but these aren't African acacia. Uh, the African acacia, I I was over there in Kenya. I mean, it's amazing how embellished they are with thorns. It's the same genus. Um, I know acacia trees are, is that a genus? I think so. Okay. I'll, I'll double check. It's either a genus or a family. Yeah. But, um. This uh, forms these thorns that sort of look like a bullhorn. Huh. Yeah, because it's sort of bulbous on the bottom of the thorn and it goes up. And there's usually a hole that the ants chew. And that is basically the entrance into their galleries inside the bull, bullthorn acacia. So the insects live inside the tree, but during the day, they're just constantly on patrol. So ants are just going up all the branches and twigs, checking to see if there's anything that's going to munch on it. So whether it's a grasshopper or some browser that's coming, some deer is going to nibble, immediately the the ants on site will, you know, send out the right pheromone and just then all the ants come streaming to uh, the place where the attacker is and just bite the dickens out of it 
and jump on it. Oh and, man! And so they've got a built just a built-in yeah body so they just swarm. yeah they just really take care of and they even patrol not only the branches uh, against herbivores but they go down below the tree and groom the the vegetation that might compete with the acacia tree. So it's a nice groomed lawn. Wow. Below or whatever vegetation happens to be there. They just snip it off and keep everything groomed. So we know that, okay, the acacia tree is really benefiting from the ants, but how, does, how, how do the ants benefit from the tree? And a number of things, a couple of things, particularly, they, it serves as a house for the ants. Yeah. And it also produces food. And they have these extra floral nectaries, which are these little little dishes, sort of the base of their petioles, uh, filled with nectar. Mm. And so as the, the ants are on patrol, the soldiers, they, they will just, there's always these drinking fountains all over the place. <laughs> uh, but it's not just water, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a carbon source. And so they're getting It's like the Big nutrients. Rock Candy Mountain. Yeah, Big Rock. So they're getting a little sugar water, a little soda pop machine yeah. here, there. And the ants get energy there. But it's not just carbs. On the tips of the leaflets, some of the leaflets, they form these sort of little structures that are sort of orange that look like gel tabs um, hmm. it's, that are growing off the tips of the leaf. Hmm. And they're called Beltian bodies. And they're rich in lipids, some proteins in so them. they get sick of dessert, they move over yeah. to the savory. Yeah, the savory. Buffet. And they can basically snip those off at the base, clip them, and then carry them and store them. Wow. So these, these trees really do provide, and I mean, it looks like a match made in heaven. Oh, that is incredible. Yeah. So the Belgian bodies, the extra flora nectaries with the acacia ants, just and then the ants protecting the tree from herbivores. It's really, really amazing. That's a, that's a comprehensive type of yeah. symbi or mutualism rather. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. And in one sense, you could say that that's, you know, a deluxe mutualism because again, how would that fit into a pre, there always seems to be some kind of antagonism, but it's not, it's not, herbivory is not the result of the fall. Right. So these ants eating plants the, and plants not ants, plants and not the being ants protecting, life. Well, and the ants protecting the plant the tree from these other herbivores. Yeah. Is that, you know, just discouraging the herbivores from eating that plant? Is that something that's right. How much unpleasant? Of, right. Uh, you know, right, right. How much you know, of this I, I don't want to get out on the skinny branches of the acacia tree here. <laughs> um but no, that's, it at least, that's uh, good. you know, I think anytime you start speculating on what the pre-fall world is like, yeah, make sure that you hold it in an open hand. Absolutely. And, and really, you know. Call it, it what it is. It's test, speculation. Yeah. And test it with scripture and don't get too attached to it because it might be just flat wrong. Right. That's good. Uh, a couple other categories that are interesting to me. One of the categories is just the pollination category, mm -hmm. pollinators. And that's a huge one. Um, There's so many. So we, many pollinators it, out there yeah. and so many plants that benefit from pollinators. And the other big category is, is, is humans and domesticated animals. Yeah. And so maybe just exploring the, the pollinators a little bit here. 
mm-hmm. one of one of my favorite pollinators. I'll just I'll just I'll pick one I'll pick one flower and one one pollinator um, to to spend just a little bit of time on. But that would be the, um, the hummingbird, mm-hmm. and it would be a, a flower like the cardinal flower. Mm-hmm. And so the cardinal cardinal flower is this this beautiful little herbaceous flower, wildflower, pretty short, maybe a couple feet in in height at most, and it has this really long red tube. Mm-hmm. And um and the hummingbird's bill, of course, is perfectly crafted uh, yep. to get down in there. Um, and to dust its face with pollen, right? Um, uh, and then and then to move on uh, yeah. to to the next cardinal flower to provide um, that exchange of 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 the sperm inside the pollen grains, mm-hmm. um, and bringing them over to a different member of the same species, yep. which is also which also has both both male and female parts, and and then we have a, a sexual reproduction occurring, and and seeds can be made. And the cardinal flower, I assume, is is it red? It is because hummingbirds do like. <laughs> Red. They do tend to like red. They like the red and yellow. They yep. love those hummingbird feeders. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, There's another moth that uh, has a really long proboscis. Somebody, uh, I think it was actually Darwin, he just assumed, okay, there's a corolla tube that's a foot long and the yeah. nectaries are down at the bottom of the tube. So he speculated that there's probably some kind of pollinator that can reach that nectary. And it turned out there was a, I mean, Either way, creation or evolution can explain that. Right. But um, the sphinx moth, which is a uh, type of hummingbird moth, yep. has a proboscis that's a foot long and unrolls it and gets to the nectary. Wow. They discovered that later. He predicted it and yeah. then they discovered it later. So, Oh, that's neat. A lot of special, there are generalist pollinators where the plant will, you know, any or a large variety of pollinators will do. Yeah. But then some plants are very, very specialized, only have one species or a very narrow related set of species that actually pollinates them because they're very specialized in their flower structure yeah. and bloom and everything that it sort of weeds out everybody except this one highly specialized pollinator. Right. That can do the job. So yeah, pollination's big. What do you think about the, what do you, what creature do we regularly inter- interact with? Like or, vertebrate organism, do you think we have a, a, a mutual, mutualistic relationship with any? any Besides th- the bacteria. And, and yeah, it's like a, like a vertebrate, another vertebrate. Well, you know, things that aren't obligate mutualists. <laughs> yep. Okay. So obligate means these two have to be together. Right. Or they're toast. Right. The tube worm and the arcane bacteria uh, yeah. <laughs> really have to <laughs> right. be together. But um, yeah, dogs and cats. I mean, you, you take your domesticated dog and say, hey, Rover, go live in the mountains. He'll probably not make it. Right. So we've bred dogs to be very dependent, uh, generally, unless you have a, you know, a dog like Buck in Call of the Wild that okay. can join the wolf pack. You right. Know? But um, right. most dogs are just not able to... Live they're they're in the cute wild. couch potatoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lap dogs and stuff. Uh, little doggy McNuggets, uh, <laughs> yeah. and they're just not going to make it. But they provide companion. It's not necessarily an essential need for the the human, right? It's a companionship, so it benefits the human, it, and the dog is benefited by giving getting free room and board. Yeah. So 
Yeah, I think I think maybe a more Cats and dogs a more obligate of pets. A more obligate example would be something like the sled dog for people who are subsistence hunters. Yeah, yeah. Have, having the sled dogs be able to serve something that that's more role. utilitarian, right? Rather than just companionship. Yeah. One of my favorite to look at another ant example. Well, actually, there's two exa- examples. How many ant species oh, are there? Over over ten thousand species okay. of ants. I don't know. It's probably even more than that. But I remember at one point. It was a little below, but then when I looked again, it was over, way over 10,000 species. But there's uh, the, you probably have seen this in nature documentaries, the leaf cutter ants Mm -hmm. that cut vegetation in South America and they haul it back. These, these uh, workers are carrying these big chunks of leaves. It looks like some construction dude holding on to a big piece of drywall. Yeah. And they carry it back into the colony. And then other workers that are smaller chew it and mince it all up and clean it and just use all of those leaf fragments that are macerated. And then they inoculate it with this fungi. And so Mm. they basically make fungal gardens. Yeah, they're farmers. They're farmers. Absolutely. Fungi farm. I love that. Fungi farmers. And then other ants are like cowboys and they uh, have their own herds of aphids and they actually bring, bring them out and turn them loose on the vegetation. The aphids are feeding Take on the, the phloem, which are the sugar water pipes and plumbing of the plant. And then the sugar water goes through the gut of the uh, aphid. Of course, they take what they need, but then they shoot all the sugar water out the back. And usually see a little drop forming on the back of the aphid mm-hmm. and the ants will just lick it up. Wow. And it's just like, these are their own little cattle. <laughs> um, it's great. That's so, fantastic. So yeah, um, um, there, the, we could go on and on and on yeah. for mutualism. I, but. You know, uh, what? I, w- I have a question for you. I, one of my favorite things to watch is, especially bumblebees. Bumblebees are just you know, to me, they're kind of like the grizzly bear of the pollinator yeah, world. They're, they're just, they don't even look that should be capable of flying. They're just so massive. Right. At least, at least their length and width, they're, they're kind of the. Yeah. They're just cute. Yeah. They're cool looking creatures. And, um, they have these, uh, they have these little sacks or little, um, they're little called, stru- yeah, they're pollen called, sacks or they're, they're, yeah, they're called pollen baskets. I okay. Think, yeah. Um, which they load up on the, on the base of their legs not yeah. on the base their tibia their base kind of looks like the inside ba- of what sorry, be their ba- upper leg yeah it's basically their uh, expanded portion of their foot okay basey it's called a basey tarsus huh it's expanded and then they can load up pollen honeybees do the same they yeah they have these nice little and pollen they, and baskets. they get bright they're, what did i say full. pollen basket yeah you said pollen basket yeah yeah they're pollen baskets and they Use them to basically little satchels to load up with pollen and then take it back and uh, to the hive and store it. And so that's a, just a, a, you're going to lose some of it along the way. The pollen basket's not completely sealed yeah, up. The, some of that's going to exactly. fall off and, on the, on and the, pollinate uh, on the, the stigma. Uh, yeah. Onto yeah. those, onto that sticky stigma. And then the remarkable process of, of pollen tube formation, all that oh, cool yeah. stuff happens. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the world is just chock full of these mutualistic relationships. I think we're going to just find more and more yeah. of them as yeah. we discover, you know, more and more species more and study them in stick, depth. More than you can shake a stick at and we'll find many more, but it, all of it declares the glory of God. 
Amen. Absolutely. It's it's uh and I think it 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 declares the glory of God in a special way, mm-hmm. showing how he can care for his creatures, giving them the right type of equipment or life cycle um, to be able to uh, provide for the needs of another creature entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a completely different species, completely different kingdom. Yep. Uh, that's just really neat stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right, Gordon. Good to talk to you. Good chat with always. you, sir. We'll see you. We'll see you later. Thank you for listening. And remember, for all your homeschool science needs, go to noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com.